What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. If you've been enjoying the show and you want an easy way to support it, you should leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're on a Mac, probably the easiest way to do that is just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that will open up Apple Podcasts for you. In today's episode, I sat down with my good friend, Vincent Wu. Vincent was first on the podcast a couple years back when he told us the story of how he had bootstrapped CoderPad to millions of dollars in revenue. Since then, I've had the chance to keep up with Vincent and watch his company continue to grow until he eventually sold it for an eight-figure sum. And then he's been living for eight or nine months after that sale. So I figured it'd be great to bring Vincent onto the show to talk about the entire journey of being a bootstrapper, from coming up with the idea to running and growing your company through all the different phases of success to selling your company and then trying to figure out what to do with your life after that. In addition, Vincent is always entertaining to talk to. He's smart, he's sarcastic, and the two of us always seem to get into some sort of debate whenever we talk. So I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. So we're going to talk about what it's like to sell your business for, um, what's the number that we're allowed to say? Tens of millions of dollars? Uh, I'm Yeah, I'm allowed to say, legally speaking, that I've sold my business for tens of millions of dollars. And what are you going to do with uh, your tens of millions of dollars now that you have it in your bank account and it's all yours? <laughs> it's not theoretical. It's not someday. It's here. <laughs> what am I? I'm nothing. I mean, like, I don't. I don't do anything with money, man. I'm like, what is money? I bake bread. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, fu- I fund initiatives that I think are important to a small degree. Like I haven't spent anywhere close to like the majority of the money yet. The short answer is I don't know. It is a surprising thing to happen to me in my life. You know, I started to suspect that something like this might happen like eventually in like the last few years, but to have it actually happen is another thing entirely. And the truth is I am sort of dumbfounded by the sense of my own luck in this matter. Like, I don't know. Uh, I haven't planned for this. I don't know what I'll do. You know, I sort of assume that I will lose all of it sooner or later. <laughs> I mean, it's been, what, nine, 10 months since you sold? Yeah, that sounds about right. I think like fall last year, maybe. So, yeah. I think it says something about you that like that much time can go by and it's still for you is kind of like a, a weird, surprising thing that like, you've made this much money. Most people I know who sold their companies or had some sort of windfall, they're like super strategic about it. They're like, I'm going to spend the next 12.9 months planning exactly what I'm going to do with my fortune and invest it here and here. And for you, it truly is just like, wow, look at all this money. My only plan was actually to learn to become comfortable doing very little. The process of having earned that sum of money is actually quite a bit of work. And a lot of it, you know, frankly, quite pointless work, I would say like work with no particular meaning to it and being able to just do nothing for a while and to learn to sit well with the notion of doing nothing, I think sounded very rewarding to me. So that's what I've been doing. I think pretty much, you know, with, with some (laughs) exceptions, which we can talk about later uh, over the last like year or so. Yeah. I've really done quite a bit less and I enjoy myself. Like I bake bread. I used to do ceramics before the world ended. I run, you know, like very simple things, frankly. Do you think your company brought you the same level of joy as the things that you're doing now? 
different sort. I mean, level is tough. Like, how do you, <laughs> there's this sort of peace to running alone through the streets of San Francisco at 3 a.m. It does bring a sense of happiness, but it's a different sort of happiness than the joy of like nurturing a small team through the growing stage of a company. You know, like they're both rewarding. They're rewarding very different ways, you know. I've been reading The Snowball, which is a Warren Buffett biography recently. I'm listening to the audiobook. It's like 37 hours long. It's by far the longest thing I've ever listened to. So at this point, it feels like Warren Buffett is my close personal friend. <laughs> but a lot of the book is obviously about how rich this guy is. And a lot of it is about <laughs> how uh, frugal he is. Like he's famously frugal. He still lives in the same house that he's bought, that he bought like 50, 60 years ago. And I think a big part of the reason why he's frugal is because he is so confident in his investing skills that when he looks at a dollar in his hand, it looks like 10 or $20 to him. Like he can just vividly imagine like how much more money he could turn that into. And so he doesn't want to buy like a million dollar house because for him, that's like, this costs $20 million. That's crazy. Uh, I don't believe that. I mean, I feel like a lot of people have mythologized Warren Buffett to the extent where he's now like a, he's like a figure more than he is an actual person with real spending habits. Like I, I, was, I was actually talking to a friend of mine today who uh, is running like a small investment firm. And he said, you know, I think a lot of people think Warren Buffett has like magic in him. <laughs> people do. There's like people who like knock on his door and like throw themselves before his feet and start bowing to him. He's had all sorts of crazy stuff happen. And he's really just like a investing nerd. Dude, Warren Buffett has made a lot of money, but he is also, he's also the contemporary of many other people who manage much larger funds who've made much more money, you know, who probably aren't quite so frugal. So I would hesitate to associate too much in the way of like moral causality uh, to any particular like little meaningless spending habit that he has, right? <laughs> like whether or not he buys a house worth slightly more is meaningless in terms of like, Berkshire's overall returns. That's just interesting to me because I think, you know, as different as he is from you, at the end of the day, he just like didn't really spend his fortune and he just sort of reasoned to himself. He said, just spend his life doing what he likes doing, which is just making more money. And then after he dies, his relatives can figure out like how to donate it philanthropically. And with you, it's kind of like- His well, relatives money. can figure it out? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. it's like his kids no, are in charge of his charitable foundation. Didn't he foundation. pledge to the giving fund or whatever that he's yep. supposed to end so his a lot of it. A lot of it is literally just giving it to Bill Gates to figure out how to give it away. Giving it to Bill Gates. I'm glad he did that, at least. Uh, I think it is normally the case, actually, that like most wealthy people end their lives with the majority of their wealth still. And I think this is both, like, I mean, this is exactly the sort of thing that we complain about in modern democratic society, and I think perhaps rightfully so. Like, I personally am in favor of raising the estate tax to something like 90%. Yeah. Or a hundred, honestly, if we could get away with a hundred after a certain point, or it's like, do you really? Does it really make society better if if people are just born? Yeah, billionaires? yeah, like a mar a marginal rate that like above a billion, it's a hundred. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, I I plan to end my life with none of my money. You know, like uh, I don't, it, you can't take it with you. You know, so you have to figure out where it's going to go in this lifetime. I think it was Andrew Carnegie or someone who was who said that he who dies with the majority of his riches dies embarrassed. Uh, Carnegie? <laughs> I think so. It was one of the mega robber barons. Yeah. it's true. I mean, it's true that Carnegie did live in a time in which there was a weird sense of noblesse of bleach among the very wealthy, even still, that we have since lost in the present day. <laughs> so I could imagine Carnegie saying something like that. So let's talk about what you're doing with all this freedom. It sounds like the biggest thing that, you know, the sale of your company has afforded you is the freedom to spend your time however you want to. And yeah, not, just like on Twitter, 
like every hour of every day. <laughs> totally. Okay, so you're on Twitter, and I know you've done some journalism. Yeah. Do you want to hear about the Lambda School story? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, tell us about the Lambda School story. Uh, you know, I got interested in Lambda School uh, just as a concept because the people who run it are so fucking crazy, you know, about, I don't know. It, it was a while ago now, I'd say maybe like when I got started, like at least eight, nine months ago, kind of around the same time I started thinking about selling the company actually. So it was, yeah, it was weird. Like while I was selling the company, I was actually contemporaneously working on an investigative journalism piece about Lambda School, uh, which kind of split my attention at the time, but it worked out okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I just sort of suspected that this company was being run poorly and began, uh, you know, because of various things that people had told me with insider knowledge and began interviewing just like a bunch of people, a lot of former students or current students, one prominent former employee and some other people I can't name. And basically put together a story that tried to marshal as much factual evidence as possible that at the very minimum, one should regard the leadership of Lambda School as having committed fraud. And Lambda School, I, well, I just zoomed all the way out. Lambda School, for people who don't know, is an online-only coding education boot camp that students enroll in for nine months that ostensibly teaches them to code. And I had Austin on the podcast way back in the day, maybe like when Lamb School was about a year old and they were growing like crazy. And it was honestly one of my favorite interviews. What, on this podcast? Yeah, he was on um, Indie Hackers. And he <laughs> talked all about, I mean, they have obviously a very like inspirational, evocative vision where they're changing the way that people, Certainly. they're changing the way that people get education and moving people from lower income brackets into upper income brackets, basically for free, uh, because essentially. For free? <laughs> because essentially people who can't Sorry. afford to go to college <laughs> could use laugh. Lambda School to basically learn how to become a software mm -hmm. engineer in, I don't know, nine months or however long it takes, and then get, you know, the next year be getting paid $100,000, $120,000, yeah. and they pay like, you know, Lambda School by paying a percentage of their salary rather than having to pay up front, which is like a prohibitive bar yeah. for a lot of people to get education. I'm sure that has happened, yeah. So it's kind of a cool, yeah. inspirational mission that at least people like me want to cheer for. And then you sort of exposed a lot of stuff that was like, you know, a little bit less inspirational. Yeah, no, I mean... I I, I mean, I think I was interested precisely because I'm interested in the mission, you know? Like, if I didn't care about the topic, I don't think I would have investigated. I think it was, I think it's because of my early exposure to boot camps. Like, I was a very early uh, mentor at one of the earliest cohorts of Dev Bootcamp, and I knew quite a few people that had gone through the different phases of the evolution of the bootcamp ecosystem that, like, what Lambda School was doing sort of flew in the face of what I thought would be possible or feasible. I think a lot of my initial skepticism was like, this is a company that's simultaneously innovating on two fronts, ostensibly, right? Like one, they're doing online only education. Like that alone gave me such pause because what I had seen witnessed, like witnessed personally in real life, even with dedicated instruction in real life, like face-to-face, -face, a struggling student can struggle for so long. Like the, the moment the breakthrough happens for a student to understand, like, I don't know, some random ass concept like recursion, it can be, you know, it can be quite a long time. You know, it takes a lot of effort and pedagogical finesse from the instructor in order to bring them through that realization. So the idea that you could do this online, just like willy nilly, I mean, I was like, they must have an amazing like way of conceiving of this whole problem or something. And then two, they were innovating along the financialization lines of the school, which I just thought like, well, you guys are doing a lot right now. 
where they they don't charge any students up front and ostensibly claim only a portion of their salary after the fact if they get a job. And I was like, wow, okay. I mean, that sounds really cool, but like, how could this work? You know? So there was a lot of like, how could this be working in the beginning? And then that initial skepticism compounded with uh, just all the weird stuff that the leadership would say on Twitter that made me just like just feel like something was going wrong somewhere. The first thing that came out of my radar about you caring about Lambda School, which is we were talking about Austin on Twitter. And Austin is like a pretty unique tweeter. He's like, I've never seen someone who's been so enthusiastically positive about their own company and their own (laughs) mission. Like he literally had a tweet where it just said Lambda School in all caps with like 12 (laughs) exclamation marks after it. And I was like, wow, this is cool. This guy is just like, he's got so much energy. And you were like, no, there's fraud where there's fire or where there's smoke, there's fire, there's something going on here. And it seemed to me that like all you had to do was look at the Twitter account of the founder and like that was enough for you to figure it out. Well, I, I had a lot of domain knowledge too. But you know, I, th- I think the truth is that Austin fits in very well in VC Twitter. I think what makes it, his Twitter presence unusual is actually it's like a founder saying this stuff. But it, it's not uncommon, I think, for like West Coast VCs on Twitter to express themselves in this wholly self-promotional way. And I think... Part of the reason that Austin is that way is I think he's taken a lot of cultural cues from this Malou, you know? And I, I think that that explains a lot of his, his aesthetics. So what's the the upshot of, of what happened? You figured out something fishy is going on. You decided yeah. that you wanted to, while selling your company, do some investigative citizen journalism uh, <laughs> and figure out whether or not Lambda School was up to no good. You interviewed a bunch of people. And what was the outcome? <laughs> I mean, the outcome is the piece got published and a lot of people got mad at different people on the internet, you know, for like a week and then, you know, life moves on. Do people get mad at you? I, I'm, oh yeah, a little bit. I mean, people got mad at each other. Some people got mad at Lambda School. You know, it's like a shit, like you don't control the story once it's like on the internet. You know what I mean? Like I just put it out there. I presented the facts as I had seen them and, you know, I, I provided the interview transcript with Austin, like the recording that we did with the interviews. I tried to be as transparent as possible. And now it's just out there. I've been given to understand from talking to, you know, people with knowledge that Lambda School's corporate climate has changed a bit since the publishing of the piece. E.g. they've started to hire out around roles regarding like uh, how to put it, curriculum quality. <laughs> yeah, that, that little thing. It, they, you know, it seems like they're trying to take it more seriously, which is good. I mean, like at some level, I'm obligated to say that it would be good for the world if they did well. And it shouldn't bother me that like Austin, like himself, is successful if the school is truly successful. And that, you know, that I actually do hope that they figure out how to make it. I'm skeptical, but it would truly actually be a good thing for the world if someone figured out how to crack online-only coding education for people with no prior exposure to coding. Like, that is kind of the golden goose. So you kind of had aspirations to do some journalism. You started investigating a story. You took that story to fruition. You published it. It had effects. Are you going to do more journalism? I don't know, man. Like, if you got any tips, anyone at home has any tips go ahead and email me. My email address is me at vincentwu.com. If you know about some crimes, I'll take a look. I can't promise anything. You know, but really it comes down to like, do I, uh, I'll, ha- I'll happily do another news story when the opportunity presents itself. 
And I had a couple opportunities present themselves, but I don't think any of them crossed over the boundary of newsworthiness. So I didn't fully develop them. You know, I just kind of dropped the stories. I think Lambda School was a, a story where there was a clear newsworthy component that gave me the confidence to know that the work I put into it would be would reach you know would reach people somewhere, but for most stories that you come up with, you have to pitch an editor. And like I don't work for a publication, so I have to. I'm like pitching as a freelancer, and that makes the bar a bit higher. You know, like you have to you have to really sell like why the story is important. You know who else had a short stint as a journalist after reaching a pretty big financial milestone with his business? Warren Buffett. He... Oh come on, man! What is this? <laughs> did he pay for? Did he pay for this? Like, what's going on? I'm just noticing that you know there's a lot of parallels between Vincent Wu and the life of Warren Buffett, and it might be so, because I've been uh, immersed in this Warren Buffett land for the last 37 hours. What what stories did he work on? Did Buffett did Buffett break any like spicy news in his day? He did. He broke a big scandal about an institution that was purporting to do good, and it turned out that it was <laughs> actually not doing good. And he won a Pulitzer Prize. Go figure. Yeah, I, I you know, I respect that. I, I sort of, I, it makes perfect sense to me, right? Like if you work your life in or around an industry, you get to know its ins and outs pretty well. And you can just tell from the performance characteristics, like purportedly of a thing, like whether there might be something fishy going on. Like so many people knew about the Madoff scam, not because they saw Madoff take money from one customer account and put it in another, but because his performance metrics were the wrong shape, you know, they were just like, how did it, uh, this doesn't seem possible. Like that guy either really knows something. You can just tell. Yeah. Like the, the knowledge, the presupposing he, he's in possession of the knowledge that would allow him to do what he's claiming to do. Why would he be doing what he's doing? Like running a small family office, right? He'd be doing something completely different if he was actually in possession of knowledge of that nature. So they, they could just tell, you know, and I, I bet Buffett had a similar feeling. And I think I also, I think, had a similar feeling, you know. So he broke the story on this this charity called Boys Town where they would take in underprivileged boys or something and they'd, you know, give them a life and reform them and oh, God. Uh, provide for them. And they were sending like 20 million letters every holiday season to Americans all over the country asking for donations. And he just like kind of did the math in the same way that you're talking about Madoff where he's like, Based on like the campaign you're running, like you should be making a lot more money than you're reporting. And he just spent like a year <laughs> trying to break this story. Eventually, got it published. I think uh, the paper he published it with won a Pulitzer because of this story. For this story, yeah. Wait, are you story. telling me that Warren Buffett won a Pulitzer? Uh, I think the paper that published the story that he worked on. Right, but the re- but the reporter yeah. usually gets. Yeah. yeah, look it up. Oh my god, yeah, that's crazy. It could be you, Vincent. I don't think I'm that talented. No. <laughs> That's incredible, actually. Yeah, one of my favorite movies is Spotlight. Is that about like the Catholic Church scandal? Yes, yeah. Yeah, it was a good movie. It's about the Boston Globe's uh, Spotlight Reporting Unit. There are only so many movies about journalists doing a journalism thing that are actually enlivening to watch as just like a random audience member. And I think Spotlight is one of them. Like, I tried to watch like All the King's Men or whatever. It's just so boring. But like, Spotlight is good. I really, the pacing... Mark Ruffalo, the 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 magnitude of the damage that was being done to society by the Catholic Church at the time, like all those come together. It's a great story. I mean, it's a tragic story, obviously, but also very well told story of journalistic courage in the face of overwhelming institutional social pressure to believe a certain story that was just not true, you know? Right. So someone who's worked both as 
uh, an amateur journalist, and obviously you started a successful tech business. What's your take on the current sort of tech first media industry fight that's really been going on for five or ten years now, but it's kind of blown up recently five with all or sorts ten of years. From my perspective, it's been going on for about that long. I don't know if it's been as popular, but I think it kind of peaked around the 2016 election um, with the controversy around Facebook. It's true that Trump brought a lot of this to a head. I mean, ultimately, yeah, I, I agree that everything that is happening now is a result of an event that got started four years ago, nominally because of Facebook, but more about, you know, I was even, I was talking to Casey Newton the other day and I was just like, how did you come to being like a beat reporter on Facebook? Or like, I, I noticed that you'd become much more critical of the company. Like, like what, what happened? Like, and he told me that, I don't think I think I'm totally fine to share this. That, that he, he had been sort of a less critical reporter in, in a heyday when tech was just like more purely exciting, and everything that was happening regarding tech seemed to be kind of good or at least neutral. So it just was fun, you know. And, and it was only around the Trump election he told me that like he began to start he began to examine tech through the lens of power and like what its actual effect on society is liable to be. And I think that's when his coverage started to shift. And I really. I respected that he came to that decision. You know, I think we're we're still fighting this weird skirmish around this today. I think the whole conflict is really funny at some level. One thing that I think is ridiculous about it is that, you know, in order for like Balaji and the other prominent like VCs who think that like journalism is now morally bankrupt, like in order to make their argument have oomph, they sort of have to build up journalism as like a pillar of culture. And they have to make their enemies seem sort of all powerful and ever present. And like, this is really amusing to me because journalism's influence on culture is probably at like a 20 year low, you know, like we've been bleeding, like I say, we, I mean, putatively we, like journalism has been bleeding money ever since the invention of the internet, you know, and like everyone knows it. So like, if that's the case and journalism is sort of less relevant than ever, like, why are they so upset? You know, like one imagines like if it, if your model of the world truly is that a dying industry is out to get you for no particular reason, like why bother caring? You know, I mean, I have, like, I have an answer to that question, and it's yeah. a speculative answer. But journalism, well, not journalism, but the media, traditional media, and I think social media, represented by tech, are I think natural enemies. They're natural competitors, and I think just for purely logical business related reasons, it would make sense for any competitor to write disparaging things about their competitor, right? Like if, I, don't, if I don't agree. No. I mean, if, if that was the case, I think you would see more systemic action by both sides. But as far as I can tell, like the extent of the conflict has been limited to individuals having shit fests on Twitter. I think the vast majority of both tech and journalism doesn't give a shit about the other party. That's you know? true. I mean, there's a reason why I think it started before 2016, which is... There was, like, as you're alluding to in your conversation with Casey, a period of time where most coverage of the tech industry was very uncritical. It was very fawning. It was just like, look at these cool toys are changing the world, blah, blah, blah. And then around 2010, 2011, there was, I think, it became more clear that tech posed a pretty serious threat to journalism. So you have like, uh, the iPhone and the App Store and tech Apple. Tech is basically. too broad a term, though. You know, like tech includes like Uber and like totally. Yelp.com. So, and okay, let's put it this way. Org. Big tech. You know what I mean? Like Big tech. Like the, the, the companies that control the means of distribution, right? Like Apple, which controls distribution on the iPhone. Google, which controls distribution on search. Twitter, which, which is now like 
the place like where stories tech, break. Tech media, yeah, like platforms. Yeah, the media has sort of, sort of yeah. traditionally been the distribution channel, and tech has increasingly become. I agree, but if like if that's your if that's your motive and model, you would expect conflict to arise directly between these platforms and journalism, which really hasn't been the case, with the notable exception of Facebook. You know, <laughs> like the conflict as it's currently being driven in culture presently. It's being driven by weird venture capitalists, like of all people, to give a shit about this. It's well, not the people actually running businesses. You, I'll give you, I'll give you my sort of theory, and you tell me <laughs> what you think, because you've had your foot in both doors. In fact, you might, sure. from the way you're talking, you might identify more as a journalist now than you do as a tech founder. So, essentially, if you are the media, you don't have that many weapons with which to fight tech, right? You have kind of only one weapon, which is your word. You can write stories or you can hire journalists who have sympathetic views to what you want to write about. So you don't have to tell anyone, hey, write about, write this hateful story about tech. You just look at somebody who doesn't like tech and you hire them and now they're a journalist and lo and behold, you get lots of negative stories. So, and on the flip side, tech's sort of, I guess, weapon in the fight is to control the distribution. If you're Steve Jobs, you tell the New York Times that you're going to take 30% of that revenue. You're not going to give them the email addresses or credit card information from any of their subscribers anymore. And like you're suddenly an existential threat to them. Or if you're Facebook, you tell media organizations that you're going to limit which of their followers they can even reach and they have to pay you if they want to reach. I, can we just terminate this line of inquiry? This is not how the world works. This is far too conspiratorial. The amount of people that would need to coordinate to make this model of the world reality is is It's the exact opposite. It doesn't require any conspiracy, right? There doesn't need to be, there doesn't need to be any that sort of- That Apple thinks of itself as in relation to the New York Times in particular. It doesn't. In any That's the whole way, point though. It doesn't. That's what I'm like, it yeah, doesn't I'm need saying to. None, none of the people in like the idea that you would hire a reporter because they're critical of tech. Like there are so few reporters that can only file tech stories. Like they're so overworked. The vast majority of reporters are just trying to survive through any means necessary by filing their quota. It's so hard to make a living as a journalist that you would be selected for this very specific, almost petty attribute belies a conspiratorial mind of thinking about like what like journalism as a whole like there is no mr journalism you know what i mean yeah but i don't the whole idea behind a conspiracy is you need a bunch of people in a room to get together to literally conspire versus what yeah, i'm talking I think about what you're is, suggesting is a mode where it's like you sit down and decide we're gonna hire like uh you know people who are unfriendly to tech that's clearly you know this isn't how it happened because the same people who are filing anti-tech stories today were writing pro-tech stories five years ago. Some of the same They're people. the same people. No, from the large, like these positions are so hard to come by. They're occupied by mostly the same humans. Well, I think you're a pretty good example. For example, like you weren't a journalist 10 years ago. Like today you are a journalist. Right. The story that you pitch is like a decidedly anti-tech story. And it's a good story. It's a story that should be published. Like I'm not going to sit out here and say like tech should be exempt, should be the sole industry that's exempt from criticism. Like I don't believe that at all. But I think that you know, essentially any media organization is going to want to write about certain topics. The idea that like media organizations don't have an editorial team that decides what do we want to write about and what do we care about and what do we think will be popular is... Certainly they do. I guess what I'm saying is like tech is a pretty minor concern of journalism. Like journalism is attempt... Like I, I think tech just has a really inflated notion of how important it is to the rest of culture. Like when I was pitching the Lambda School story... You understand, like, my story was delayed for, like, a month. The story was done, like, basically done, like, a month prior to its publication. What happened was, like, Washington, D.C. kept emitting news. Like, 
I was pushed back like week after week after week because everything in the world was more important than what some random tech company had done wrong. So this is where I think the tech side of things is like jump the shark, where essentially most of the VCs you're talking about who complain, their chief complaint was, I don't like the way that I was criticized. Yeah. Which is kind of and like, well, no one, likes, no one likes being criticized by the media. The, like, the that's not really they, a- they draw attention to themselves in complaining about the criticism. Like if they wanted to move past the criticism, the easiest thing to do would be to ignore it because outside of their strange reactions to it, it's not really that much of a story, you know? Like wealthy people behaving badly, open any newspaper any day of the week and there'll be a story like it, you know? Like, I think the opposite is also true. So for example, there's this recent sort of spat over this app clubhouse where some people were talking about they're criticizing journalists. And then like the articles that appeared in, I don't know what publication were basically boiled down to how dare tech criticize the media. And it's like, it's, it's funny because it's literally the same thing happening sure. in reverse. I think you're reading that a bit. I, I don't agree with the characterization, but <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think if you're like a prominent famous person and you go on the record criticizing almost anyone in a public forum that gets reported. Like if they were complaining about Donald Trump or like, I guess more pointedly like the Democrats, I guess, because that would be more unusual. Like that would be reported too, you know, and is frequently reported. <laughs> like, I don't think this is unusual. This is just normal journalism. Normal journalism is falling around noteworthy people and waiting for them to say something noteworthy and then publishing it so that you can make your quota. Like, that's okay. Like, that's the system functioning, you know? In so much as this, it was a meta story that happened to concern journalism itself this time, like, whatever. Like, who cares? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that you're right. I think there's also a lot of just, like, incentive-caused bias. If you just look at what people's incentives are, I don't think you need any elaborate conspiracies. I don't think you need any sort of people meeting in a dark room. I think you think individuals are much more motivated by the economic incentives of their industry than they are in practice. You know? I think that the individual software engineer at Google doesn't care about the media. I think the individual journalist at the New York Times doesn't care about the tech industry. Yeah. I think the people who run those businesses, I think the people who invest in those businesses do care a lot. I think if you are the, uh, and the leadership at the New York Times, you care a lot about controlling the distribution of the New York Times. You care a lot about the existential threat of like distribution platforms being owned by tech. Uh, sure. But I don't think that boils down into individuals. I agree that over a long time, this bias may present itself in one way or another. But I think for these individual spats that we are observing right now, they are so random and so untied to actually any economic stakes. Like if you look at what's like this whole thing got kicked off because someone, because of like the, the woman who's in charge of that away luggage company did some crazy stuff like way back when, like that's, that's the impetus for all that. This is not even an important company. You know what I mean? This has nothing just, to do with It feels very tribal to me. Platform. It feels like one tech founder gets criticized and then a bunch of venture capitalists and other tech founders come to their defense or one media organization gets criticized and then a bunch of media organizations come to their defense. I agree that the main emotive force behind this conflict is tribalism, but I do not agree that there is actually like much of a from on high reason for this conflict to exist. I think the only reason this conflict is existing is because tech is ascendant and they're going to generate more newsworthy stories than they would previously. You know, yeah. like there are more tech companies, they are more powerful. They're beginning to represent a larger and larger slice of the modern work economy. And of course, 
like we were publishing articles about people getting their hands chopped off in factories during the industrial era, we're going to start writing about the abuses of workplace culture in the tech era today. Like that's necessary. It's desirable, in fact, from like the journalistic press. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. I think what's fascinating about your role in all of this is that you've sort of switched careers. I mean, you're not a full-time journalist. It's not like you've made a, you know, drawn it's, a hard line less, in the sand. I haven't switched career. I like ended my career. And you I'm ended retired. your career. I'm retired. <laughs> and you've retired. And I think in most industries, if someone is a success, as you undoubtedly were as a founder, you know, most successful carpenters, like stay carpenters, most successful software engineers, stay software engineers. Why aren't you, Is that true? you know, starting another tech business? Why aren't you, you know, going for round two and applying all your previous learnings and connections to do something even bigger and better? I mean, I'm, I'm working on some little, little stuff, but I mean, I, I made my company because I felt compelled to, not because I like wanted to be a founder, you know, I think a lot of people actually are that way you know, like, do carpenters stay carpenters? Like, maybe, like, why are we so sure even that that narrative is true? Like, I'm not, I don't know the numbers myself. I mean, people switch jobs. Lots of people have changed jobs. The premise of Lambda School fundamentally is that you can change careers, you know? I don't think it's actually that unusual to want to do different things in life. I think it's unusual maybe to have the opportunity, but I don't think the motivation is that strange. I know all sorts of software engineers or people who work at like desk jobs who say all the time that they'd rather be doing almost anything else, you know, and I sympathize with that. And I too wanted to do something else. I just made the time for it. You know, if that's the unusual part, then so be it. But I I don't think my desires are unusual. Well, you spend so many years like acquiring these skill sets, right? You became like an extraordinarily good software engineer. You became really good at sales. You had to learn how to hire and manage people and do all sorts of like, even just selling your company, you had to learn a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then if you switch careers, it's kind of like a lot of that goes down the tube. I'm sure some of it's transferable over to other places, but do you feel like there's some sense You're in describing which... describing sunk cost fallacy, man. Like this literally the example, like who cares, right? Well, it's not 100% sunk cost. It could also be the case that your future gains or rewards could be bigger if they come from a place of mastery and experience. Right, it's telling. I mean, it, it comes down to like, what do you think is worthwhile in life, right? Like, what are you doing things for? You're right from this perspective that if my goal was to just only maximize the amount of money under my control, like, yeah, absolutely. But why, you know? Like, why do anything? And, you know, like, I don't, I don't think I have the answers to that, only to say that, like, you know, the question of desire is sort of fundamental to human nature. Like, we don't really know where desire comes from. We can't really control it very easily. We do know kind of, like, is all over the place. And I think just sort of acknowledging that frees one to let go of this impulse. It just seems like the most childish impulse to me. Like having made a bunch of money, the desire to make even more, like why? Like I, I, that I struggle to understand. So like from my perspective, like that is a far more alien thing than like wanting to switch what one does, you know? It, you know, frankly, relatively early in life, like I'm only 30, you know? It's not like I've committed 30 years in the monastery to the contemplation of the face of God or anything, you know? Not wanting to keep making more and more money, you finally said something that Warren Buffett wouldn't have said. Yeah, I mean, Warren Buffett is clearly a much more dedicated, like acolyte of the the Church of Finance than myself. You know, like money to me is just a means to an end. I think to him, it is somewhat of an end in and of itself, and you can tell that he takes joy in it. And like, good for him, I guess, but not for me. You know, was there a point at which you know a switch flipped and you were no longer? 
uh, felt compelled to continue running and growing your company and you felt like, you know what, I've been successful enough here. I've reached some number or some level where I don't care about this anymore. Like about a, about a year in. <laughs> and where was Coderpad a year into it? Oh, you know, it made enough for me to pay for my apartment. <laughs> and that was it. it never, there was well, never another milestone. Honestly, another point. and truthfully, it's hard to sell the business. It's a buyer's market. You know, and you know, they sort of tell you this in the abstract, but the reality of it is it, it's hard to get a deal that feels fair. So it took a long time. I had said no to a lot of deals. And the one I took is the first one that I felt was fair. Like I got a fair price, a price where we evenly splitting both the risk and the upside I felt, you know, like that I was being compensated fairly for my investment. And, you know, it's sort of arbitrary when, where one draws that line, like what is a fair price to sell? And it's a total soft science, but nonetheless, like I felt, I did it because I felt it was fair. And I didn't do it previously because all the offers that came to me were absurd from my perspective, you know? I want to talk about that transition period because I I don't believe that there's just like, you know, you hit a point where it pays your rent and the next day you were ready to sell. You know, maybe that's true, but I think it's, it's fascinating to look at it under a microscope because so many people are trying to start companies and they, quite frankly, would probably have a lot of trouble putting into words why they're doing it. Uh, okay. It, it, it might have been a few years in, but I mean, it was pretty early. I, I kind of knew that I would be amenable to selling the business pretty early in the business. You know, When did you actively start trying to make that happen? I didn't act. I never actively tried to make it happen. It, it, they all sort of came to me. I ended up working when the deal actually happened. I ended up working with a broker, but I had worked with a broker before and we just didn't get there. Uh, but for the most part, I offloaded the the legwork of selling because I'm not well. I'm not suited for that sort of work. I imagine the work of a broker, though I don't know directly, is, is really to to know and to talk to hundreds of potential buyers. And uh, I'm not fit for that type of thing. It's far too speculative and disconnected from like like I enjoy a sales conversation. I think because of like I, I am delivering value to someone if the deal happens and cases like this become more abstract. Like they become about the financialization of the business and like whether it's a good investment in this totally abstract term that's divorced from like real value being created by the business. And it's it's just too nerdy, you know? <laughs> it's just way too nerdy. Let's dive into the the nerdy, nitty gritty of of selling your business. Okay. I'm allowed to say a certain amount. So like what what are you <laughs> curious about in particular? We're gonna we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna go from the top. Um Obviously, I sold my company too, but it was nothing like your process. You sold to a private equity firm. Yours was like more of a legit sale. Mine was more of like a uh, just a random chance event that occurred. And yeah. I've gotten a lot of phone calls since I sold Indie Hackers from other founders selling their businesses. And I think you're one of the few people smart enough not to call me <laughs> because I have no idea how to go through the process that you're going through. Yeah, it's it's true. Also, I mean, like I experienced this. I tried to talk to people about like what this process might be like, and for the most part, I got incredibly unhelpful advice that I just ignored. I mean, it's just, this is one of the reasons I wanted to come on the show. It's actually like, there is very little in the way of discussion regarding how a bootstrapped company ought to sell a business of a certain size. Like above a certain size, the type of buyers that remain in the market are, are not a thing that get written about very much. Like there is no guide on like how to sell your tech company to private equity. And, and often there is a bit of a stigma attached to that notion as well, and perhaps rightfully so. As I, I think on the high end of private equity deal size, like 
private equity can be very dangerous for society. The way that certain companies have been effectively looted by private equity is, is very concerning and there's not a lot we can do about it. But I think it's also simultaneously true, and this is the tension that on the smaller to medium size of businesses that have been bootstrapped by their founders, private equity is probably one of the only remaining buyers in the room. So like if you want a liquidity event and your company is making, let's say, millions of dollars in revenue per year, who's left? You know, like you can try to get your company strategically acquired, but like good luck, you know, like that that's a real I mean people if you're lucky enough for that, then you know, like congratulations. But for the most part, that's not the median outcome. You know, like it's much more likely that I think your company sells to private equity. So like what does that look like? Who are the people that you're talking to? What are their incentives? You know, not a lot is said about it. Do you think that having sold Coderpad to private equity, the company is is in good hands? Like, should people go work there? Or the customers? Oh, it's very good hands. Actually, yeah. I mean, Coderpad is actively hiring. Like, so one thing that's cool about private equity is their purchase of a company is an express, it's like an express belief that the company is going to continue to be profitable and may grow significantly from the time of purchase, right? So whatever price I sold Coderpad for, my buyers think it's worth, it's going to be worth more. You know, and like their their purchase is proof of that. So Coderpad is hiring. If you're interested in working for a company that's, you know, pushing the boundaries of like what you can do in the browser regarding code execution in a live, like, you know, important career event, like the interview for a job for other programmers, like consider applying. The company's in good hands. It's being run by Amanda Richardson, who I respect tremendously. And I still consult from time to time for the business for free because I, I just find it enjoyable, actually. So... Yeah, I mean, that is sort of what is cool about selling to private equity also is that in order to make the deal happen, they have to believe that there is a way to continue to run the company as a profitable standalone business. Whereas a lot of what happens, you know, you see this all the time in like in VC-backed acquisitions, companies that are bought are very often shut down a year later. Yeah, they just disappear. What's up with that? Isn't that so strange? Why did they buy the company to begin with? What's up with that? I find that genuinely confusing, frankly. I mean, it's just a mechanism to hire the people behind the company. It's a very expensive hire. I don't think it's worth it. You pay like a couple million dollars per employee just to hire, like insane. There's no way those employees are that good. My theory is what happens is people start these huge tech companies that grow super fast. In the early days, they're extremely picky about hiring. And then as they see their companies balloon to thousands of employees and the average quality of quality of the average hire goes down, they start feeling emotionally distraught that they're not bringing in as good people. And so then they become willing to spend millions of dollars to acquire whatever the latest shiny thing is, even if they're going to shut it down, because they can tell themselves the story that now we've hired top quality people. Right. But if the the idea, if the motive behind that is a, is a disconnect between like the actual current employee base and like the employees that would be brought in via acquisition, there's no model of reality where those people would stay any length of time, right? <laughs> like your goal should be to actually like inculcate a sense of like trust in your employees and community. Not, uh, not everybody's uh, capable of long-term thinking. Well, I don't know. I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't know if I believe that theory. Like maybe... I, I think it's still pretty mysterious to me. I, I think people are yeah. just way more optimistic that the that these acquisitions will be strategic and will mutually benefit both companies and products, and that they always somehow forget that the reality is otherwise. That sounds right. I think they're just far too optimistic about acquisitions working out in that way. So tell me about the process of actually selling CoderPad. You said you didn't really initiate it. You weren't like super actively making it happen. Were buyers coming to you or were brokers coming to you? 
Uh, now and then, yeah. So the way that I ended up at, so I, I sold my company eventually through the brokers FE International. And the way I came to that is uh, some random guy, I think like a, fuck, it, it's, uh, I really ought to remember his name, but I think he was like an early Instagram employee or something like that. It was just some random tech guy that had made some money off of like equity at like a somewhat large company. And he was trying to like buy his own tech company to operate profitably. And the guy had something like, like a million dollars and he wanted to buy Coder Bad. I was like, look, dude, I don't think we're going to, I don't think we can make a market here. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'll get like a bank loan. Like I'll, I'll get a bunch of money together. You can also like just sell a portion of your company. And I was like, dude, like it's, it's not going to work. It's just, I appreciate it. It's very flattering, but like, I, I think we're both wasting our time here. And then we stopped talking. And then later he was like, Hey, you should consider working with FE International. I use them to buy a company that I'm running now. And I'm very pleased with it. And I was like, wow, okay. I guess I'd heard about FE through Patio 11. And, you know, the guy introduced me and then we got to talking. I got the sense that they were professional enough to get the job done. And I told them what my price was and they got there, you know. Um, you know, we, we talked to a variety of buyers and so forth and ended up uh, with the buyers that we ended up with. How'd you come up with the price? How? Um, I'm just going to see what I can say here. Without revealing too much, I decided on what felt like a fair multiple of revenue at the time. I've talked to some of the aforementioned people who've called me to try to figure out their own acquisition. And one of the things that always comes up is basically this process of negotiation. How am I going to get the price that I want? And it usually isn't, it usually sort of more some, how am I going to get the price that I want to? How am I going to make as much money as I possibly can during this negotiation, mm. because the upside is, is always kind of uncapped. Like you don't really know how much someone might Wouldn't be willing say, to pay you. Once it uncapped, <laughs> yeah, it's not, there's a cap for sure. No one's going to pay a trillion dollars for your like rinky dink to do list app. But like, if you think you would sell it for a million dollars, and it turns out that like you know someone agrees to a million dollars, the sort of you know normal thing to do in that situation for most people I've talked to anyway is see if they can negotiate higher, right? If someone agreed to this price, like why can't I get a higher price? Yeah, um, uh, I think I'm, maybe you're getting the wrong impression. Like it was work to get to the price I picked. I, I can't say too much more than that, but like, let's put it this way. If, uh, if, <laughs> if offers abounded at the price that I had initially chosen, I would revise my choice. You have gone upwards. But, you know, I, I chose what was a fair price. And if I mean fair in the sense that that was what the market eventually considered fair, which is to say it was the tip of the market making price, you know, it's where supply and demand just crossed. So I think I was, I correctly assessed what a fair price was because it, it took a while to get to that number. That's pretty impressive. If you so you didn't like adjust the price during the conversations. You determined a price and then yes. talked to enough people until you found someone who would match that price. Correct. I mean, and you could make the argument, perhaps, perhaps I did leave value on the table, but I suspect if I did, not, not a lot. How many people would you estimate you actually had to have conversations with before you found a good buyer? I can't really get into this, but you know, more than a, at least a few, you know. And what were those conversations like? Like working, I guess, with FE International, they were probably introducing you to a lot of buyers. Yeah. So the nature of the relationship through FE was it kind of would be shepherded around <laughs> as like the eclectic founder. And, and they would initiate the discussions, you know, like they kind of have a stable of people that they talk to who they know like to buy things. Uh, and when they judged the relationship to be perhaps serious enough, they would bring me in and, you know, the buyers would have individual questions for me, as well as a sort of sense of laying on hands, right? And then, you know, I would, give my opinion 
uh, after the meeting and sort of move on. But for a lot of it, I was, you know, I, I was pretty actually clinical about it. I was like, you know, like for a lot of bars, I was like, I, I don't know if they're going to get there, but if they get there, like, I'm fine with it. You know, like that was mostly what I had to say. <laughs> like I wasn't negotiating usually as the principal. And that is, I think, one of the nice parts about working through the broker is you can kind of, you can each point at each other and say like, hey, it's their, it's their call, you know? Like when they need to make it my fault, they can say, hey, like, you know, Vincent says, or when I need to make it their fault, I'm like, you know, right. hey, the brokers say, you know? And so for, for most of the lead up of the process, I was not negotiating principally. Yeah, I just bought a car a week and a half ago and in every car buying process, there's like a negotiation phase. And like, of course, the salesperson who's talking to you can't really agree to your request. They have to go back to talk to someone in the back room. Yeah, there's no one in there. has all the power. There's like yeah, a mirror. A, well, this guy, like, <laughs> he actually walked and talked to someone, but they weren't talking about anything related to the price of the car. Yeah, they were talking you know? about And then he would come back with yeah. some counter offer that was like, oh, it's just above what you asked for. <laughs> you know what I love is... It, I love that this behavior is universal in all negotiations. Like you're right, like in sales, like I did this all the time as a person who sold services to companies. It works. You know, I don't know that it does. It's almost like expected. Yeah, it's hard to tell a little bit, but like everybody needs to go and consult with someone before agreeing or whatever. I, I think part of it is the desire not to let the counterparty know that you can be convinced by argument you know, like if they say something that does convince you, even then you still want to be like, look, I got to ask someone. And then you come back and say, yes, even like, even if you agree, you know, like it's, I just, think that it's just appearances, it's uh, a desire to save face. I think someone, and also a desire to like reserve bargaining power for yourself later. Cause if you show that you are in charge, then I think the nature of the conversation can change to be more personal. Like they can give, more personal appeals to you. Like, come on, don't you think that? And if you obli- you want to be able to agree out of politeness in order to sympathize with the customer, right? Like, don't you think that, you know, like this price is a bit steep? Like, I want to be able to say like, yeah, I understand. But if, if I'm also the principal making the decision regarding price, I have to follow, yes, I understand with, and that's why I'm giving you a lower price. But if I'm not the principal, then I can say, yes, I understand, but I'll see what I can do, you know? And I think- being able to divest yourself of responsibility there is very powerful. It just feels easier to tell somebody no when it looks like you tried and you had some other recourse and it wasn't really your fault. The, the funny thing is anyone who's participated in any of these negotiations now knows that this is a fiction. Like this is one of those societal fictions that we all agree to, you know, like, you know, we all agree that if you get invited for dinner at someone's place and maybe you haven't been before you bring a bottle of wine, even though they probably don't want the bottle of wine that much, you know, it's just one of those, it's just one of those things, you know, like we've just decided that this is how it is. And, you know, maybe one day we'll undecide, but for now. <laughs> so when you're selling to a, a private equity firm and you're having these conversations, is any part of it like actually in person at their office or is it all sort of virtual through your broker? Um, when they became serious, we, when feasible, would meet people in real life. I mean, a, a number of times, Thomas Smale, one of the co-owners of FE International would drive me down in an Uber to the South Bay. It was like being taken to like a family meeting by your dad. He was like my dad. He was like, he looks, he looks older than me. Uh, I think he is a bit older than me. And he's a very dad-like figure. Yeah, he, he, he's also a previous guest on the podcast. Totally. Yeah. He's, he, he, 
he does the whole paternalistic thing quite well. Like, and he would bring me to these meetings and I'd be ushered in. I'd be like his child. And, you know, we would, <laughs> we would talk about, you know, we'd end up in these very swank offices. Private equity and venture capital does share some DNA in common, which can be a bit problematic. You know, like there is a definite sort of aesthetic and racial homogeneity to the space. And many of their offices feel very similar, like just like all this like very expensive wooden glass paneling, some sort of weird like light fixtures and uh, like a receptionist who will ask whether you want coffee or tea and if coffee, like what sort of coffee and with how much milk and so forth, which is like an experience I'm not very used to. You know, they, they all dress a certain way. You know, there's a lot of the classic finance outfit with the vest and all that. And we did a few of those and they were interesting, but not super memorable. Like they all kind of like jumbled together in my memory. I think a lot of it is them trying to assess whether you'd be the kind of person who would deceive them about like the viability of the business. I think they're trying to get a sense for whether like, you know, the business will continue to grow. Like their chief concern is that they might buy a business that was actually not that great, you know? And one way to assess that, and I think venture capitalists and PE people in this space maybe share this in common, is by assessing sort of the founder's temperament, whether they believe that that founder would have created a viable business, because they can only know so much from numbers, you know? And uh, so I think part of that experience is like appearing, you know, rightfully confident that you've built a good business and, you know, answering their questions, you know, plainly and truthfully, frankly, I I just told the truth. Nothing, there was no dissembling on my part. So it's almost like you're the the used car salesman in the scenario, and they're trying to make sure they don't buy a lemon. No, 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 no. I am the used car. <laughs> like, evaluating you as a person as a proxy to evaluate you business. and you and the company together are the used car, right? And the owner, you know, is also you, but is kind of represented by you spiritually by the broker, and they're the buyer, you know. And they're the buyer. They're like kicking the tire, which is you, by asking you questions about, you know, like how this business came to be and how it's doing and so forth. I haven't been to a ton of, I don't think I've ever been inside a PE firm, but I've been inside a few venture capital firms, which doesn't happen often because Andy Hackers is really about bootstrap companies. But every now and then someone wants to talk. And I observe kind of the same homogeneity where all the offices are pretty lavish. They're strikingly lavish. Yeah. Yeah. Strikingly lavish. Like they th- put a lot of thought into that. I uh, spent a lot of money on it. They almost always have like an absurdly attractive receptionist for whatever reason. It's just like consistently, it seems to be the case. This is consistent uh, with my experience as well, but I didn't want to mention it. <laughs> yeah. Why, why do you think that is? I don't like, want to get into it. It's like, <laughs> it's gross. I mean, let's just, it's like, um, I don't want to, yeah, let's move on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't have to talk about it, but I, it's almost like cults where I'm not think I don't think these people are parts of a cult, but like where a lot of cults will do things that like succeed and I guess recruiting and retaining new cult members. But then a lot of cults have no idea why any of that stuff works, and they're just copying what they see the other cults doing. Uh, okay. If I if I'm being made to to remark on it, I would say yeah. But what you're describing is kind of like a extreme way of describing what culture is in general. And I think it's striking yeah. that culture and cult share a root, like. You know, one one guy that I talked to at a PE firm kind of leveled with me is like, you know, I think we do this because we're expected to. And at some level, I agree that that is part of why they do what they do. I think 
finance, if it's unusual among industries, I think, is unusual because the nature of its competition is more zero sum than in other industries, you know? And I think because of that, people are a little more risk averse socially, at least because anyone could end up at any other firm at any other time. So kind of fitting in with everybody is a useful career attribute. Whereas I think in tech, like there's a bit more room to be unusual or eclectic, socially speaking, at least. And I think part of the reason that that all these firms look this way is probably because some of the very successful instances of these firms decided to be lavish and the rest had to follow in order to be seen as competitive with them. Do you think it had any effect on you as the seller? What do you mean? Like, do you think you were more likely to sell to any particular firm because uh, they seemed more professional, their offices were more lavish, or is it just... No, 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 not at all. I mean, as I said, I had a price in mind. Let's talk about the alternative to negotiation. Like, let's say you don't meet, no one meets your price. You know, mm-hmm. you shop it around, no one gets there, no one gets close, but you're still Vincent running CoderPad. You're still in the position that you were apparently a year or two after you started CoderPad where you're, you yeah. know, more or less having fun running it, but you'd also be happy to sell. What would you do in that situation? So I was, I was in this situation for quite a long time, right? Like every time I attempted to sell the business and did not succeed, that was the situation I was in, right? And as I saw it, you know, I had a few options, right? Like option one is like try to sell a business. Okay, two. Option two is continue to operate the business, which is what I did nominally. And third option I considered was like, you know, attempt to install a new general business owner manager in my place, give them a financial incentive to run the business well, and then retire and draw down like an owner's dividend effectively from the business. So, you know, that's a possibility, but difficult, you know, option four, you know, maybe try to promote someone from within the company to give them increasing amounts of executive authority to the point where I can do less and less. And, you know, option five, maybe I consider, I toyed with the idea of actually like raising venture capital. I'm like, I don't know, what if I try to make a really big company that just ended up being way too much work. So what I mostly did was just continue to operate the business and try to give you know, my employees a bit more latitude. I, I started to offload some of the things that I found more tedious to do as the owner of the business and, you know, hired more professional services as well, you know, like more advanced accountants and lawyers and so forth. That helped quite a bit. It's funny that you, you considered, uh, at least it's on the table, to maybe raise VC. I've heard... Yeah, I talked to a couple of people. I mean, but it's, it's too much work. I've heard a few people sort of espouse this philosophy that you shouldn't start a bootstrap company because it's about as much work as trying to start a unicorn company but if you succeed, the rewards aren't as great. What huh? are your thoughts on that? Couldn't be more wrong. <laughs> I mean, it could be more wrong, but it's, it's pretty wrong. <laughs> are they crazy? Like, why would I ever like, have a counter? Like, what are they talking about? Like, why, why would anyone say that? Isn't that, doesn't that sound crazy to you? <laughs> it does sound crazy to me. I wonder what your take is on why it's crazy. I mean, just because it's untrue. <laughs> like, what are the ways that it's untrue? Like, every way imaginable. <laughs> Do you understand how hard it is to raise venture capital? Like, holy shit. Like, it's, it's a months-long process at the end of which you have to do even more work and you're constantly racing the, against the clock because you're incentivized by the system to never be profitable, which means you always have a timer. You're always racing, you know? Like, you have to scale beyond what is comfortable almost by definition, you know? Holy shit, what a race against time. I ran my company very leisurely. You know, we did better than many venture-backed companies, but we did it by walking slower. <laughs> you know, like it was, it, you can, you can ask my employees, but I mean, for the most part, they had a pretty leisurely time. I think if they have to answer, honestly, they would say, you know, they, there's times where they worked hard, but there are a lot of times where we just sat around in the office and like talked about ants, you know, 
when I met you, I think you're like in the process of making a transition from like super serious Vincent to a lot more leisurely work fewer hours. Uh, and I think, you know, you almost ran your business in almost like a tongue in cheek way, which I really respect because it's still a hard thing to grow a company. Like it's a hard thing to do to grow a company. The amount that you did from the day that I first met you, which, which I think yeah. was in 2016. It's a matter of, it's a matter of luck it. more than anything. That's what I would say. <laughs> but yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. Go on. That's another topic we should talk about, but in general, I just think it's impressive to be able to have fun doing something and to take it easy and do it at a relaxed pace and yet succeed at doing it. And this is a thing that a lot of talented, intelligent people like don't succeed at doing. A lot of people want to bootstrap a business and get it to millions of revenue and try for a decade to do that and never do. You know, I wonder if it's because the nature of wanting to start your own company kind of selects for like highly ambitious people. And highly ambitious people tend to, I think, to be less comfortable taking it easy. And I'm kind of like a weird in-between. I think I'm like right on the edge of like uh, the kind of person who might start a business, like on the more leisurely edge. I don't think you could get much more leisurely than me and still want to start a business. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's a demographic issue more than anything. I think a lot of people who do successfully run businesses could do it by taking it much more easily. And I think a lot of them come to, come to that point in old age or when they have children, for instance. But I think initially, I understand. Like, I mean, you're right that like in the beginning of CodePad, I think I was much more serious about at least getting the business planted, you know? What do you think specifically you weren't worrying about and you weren't working super hard on that other people are perhaps, you know, due to their personalities too obsessed with or too worried about? Oh man. I mean, metrics. I think I made a very conscious early decision to not have metrics. I had seen this at Everlane and at other companies before Everlane that the moment you start measuring something, people are going to talk about it all the time. And the talking about it causes there to be a bad thing when the numbers are a bad way. And it's a good thing when the numbers are a good way. And that's sort of like letting numbers control how you feel on any given day, which I don't really like. I had, I had been through that and had not enjoyed it and decided that, you know, if I couldn't tell whether the business was doing well or not without like a BI dashboard, I had no business running a business to begin with. So <laughs> I didn't think I needed to know. I think that choice uh, cascaded in a big way in, you know, once you let go of metrics, how do you measure whether you're doing a good job or not? Like at anything, like what's the proper what is a proper time frame to finish a task? I think this is really where people drive themselves insane. They set really aggressive time frames to do things. But like, if you don't know how much money you stand to lose or, or gain, like you have only this rough notion in your mind, everything becomes fuzzier. You know, you could be like, oh, this could take a couple of weeks or maybe a month or two. And like, once you let go of this notion of precision and measurement, I think it becomes a lot easier to just like float along and just do things daily. We got about as much work as we were going to get out of ourselves if we had been a lot meaner to ourselves anyway, you know? Yeah. What about uh, on the topic of luck? You know, obviously you're a talented guy, but we've talked about this before and you've told me that you think the amount that you have gotten lucky exceeds the amount that you have talent by far. Yeah. The reason Coderpad worked is because the idea for Coderpad was correct. Everything else from there, anyone could have Implement, I mean, a modestly talented programmer of sufficient motivation could have done CoderPad given the proper formulation of the idea. The proper formulation of the idea, 
I don't know where ideas come from. Like, I don't know where thoughts come from. I'm not in charge of that. Like people just have thoughts. Like I was in a place in my life where I just happened to have been interviewing a lot. And I thought about the nature of interviews almost by a matter of curiosity. And like, I came to the idea for the business. Like it could have very easily not, you know, had something else distracted me, you know? So it was like the right time and place to have had the idea for the business. And then I had it. And I had no control over that. It's, when I say luck, that's what I really mean. Like I had no control. Like the part that mattered, I was not making a choice about. And the part that mattered by far was coming up with the correct idea. The execution is, you know, whatever. It's, it's fascinating to me for so many reasons. The first being that it's the polar opposite of the common trope that your idea doesn't matter. It's all about the execution. You're saying your idea is what would carry you know, the bulk of your success on its back. And by the far. execution almost anyone could have done. Uh, yes. Why do you think people say the opposite? Why do you think people worship at the altar of execution so much? Oh, man. Um, the cynical answer is because it is more flattering, right? Like if you have done something that is good, you wish to believe that you did it because you are good. And being lucky is not thought of, at least in Western society, as being good. Hardworkingness is. So people wish to attribute the virtuous attribute to themselves rather than the arbitrary attribute. You know, in some instances, this is correct. Like there, there have been companies where the principal virtue was execution. But my feeling in, in startups, by the nature of start, startups <laughs> usually are about coming up with a novel approach to do a thing that has either not been done or being done in a, a less than good way. And because so much of these things turn on novelty, you can't help it. I feel like you must acknowledge that the idea is principally important in this. And, you know, you can start with a bad idea and get to a good one, but it's still the idea. And I agree that in some cases it was not, an idea alone was not sufficient, but it was always necessary. You know, like Airbnb famously had the idea long before it was accepted by society. And I think I'm also lucky in the sense that society accepted my idea fairly readily. I think because it was not so novel. It was just novel enough, you know? And when you have, when you have a truly radical idea, I guess perhaps ex- execution starts to matter a bit more. I look at it as almost a multiplication-based equation where you, if either one of them is zero, if your execution is just trash, then your business isn't going to work. But the, the idea itself just has a much larger coefficient in front of it. You just get a lot more leverage from having a really great idea than you do from being a, an amazing operator or developer or designer or whatever yeah. it is. I think the degree to which you get more leverage, though, definitely depends on by principally industry, I think. Yeah. Which I consider to be part of your idea. You know, it's kind of baked sure. into your idea. Okay. But uh, fair enough. It's, it's surprising to me because I've also noticed this interviewing lots of founders at Indie Hackers. And a lot of first-time founders will sometimes just make it spectacularly well. A lot of you know, experienced founders sometimes won't. And the first-time founders, it seems like they're almost inexorably carried on the wave of like a few decisions that they made right in the early days, often without even thinking about those decisions very critically or you know, doing any sort of like business school analysis on whether the idea is going to work. They just happened to pick an idea that maybe was aligned with their passion or something they heard about or something yeah. that they cared about. And it just worked out really well for them. I think it's, there's definitely something to that. I mean, I think correct idea generation is something that's hard to do intentionally. You know, it's like yeah. deciding to be inspired. Like it's difficult. Right. Some people can sort of do it. I think if you're very practiced at it and have done it multiple times before, like I think professional musicians 
can kind of like engender ideas because like the experience of having inspiration has become more of a routine in their mind. But like, I think for business, it, it really is truly for the most part, like it's just got to have a random idea and you don't like, you can't, like you can't force it, you know, like it has to be something like that you care about at some level. Yeah. The thing that's probably more under your control is recognizing some signs of like an obviously bad idea and being able to eliminate certain ideas that you might've otherwise worked on for like a year, but it's really hard to just out of the blue generate a great idea. Hard is again, I wouldn't hard is the language of difficulty. I prefer to use the language of luck. You know, I'd almost choose words like blessed or like divinely chosen. Like the, like the language of the Greeks, you know, like they, they, they had a cognitive model that like allowed for gods to step in and, and change human cognition. I think while it's literally probably not true, the model of thinking about it, I think is more pleasing or, or models what actually happens. I mean, oddly enough, more accurately, you know, you're divinely we, inspired by a muse. We don't have control over the origin of our thoughts to such an insane degree that it's a wonder that people can have a consistent frame of view about the world at all. Like it's a miracle that memory works, you know, because like it's truly astounding. And I feel like we, we have like an hour long conversation on this topic and we probably we have, will at some point. <laughs> we, have, we have this fiction that like, you know, that you are your thoughts and they come from a place that reflects who you are. And at some level that's obviously true, but it's also obviously untrue, you know, <laughs> that yeah. you can't choose what thought to have next. I mean, this is going to turn into a discussion about free will. Oh yeah, sorry. And, okay, we don't have to do that. this. We don't have to do this one. <laughs> so now we can do this like uh, over over some of that bread that you're baking uh, someday. Sure, totally. <laughs> uh, but I feel like we've gone for a long time. We've explored what it's like to be a founder who uh, sells your business and then takes on other careers and sort of reflects on what it was like to run a business. Well, you should you should give some color here too. Like you are also such a person. <laughs> Hey, the show's not about, this is not the, the Cortland Allen episode. It's the Vincent Wu episode. I, I, I know, but like in, in so much as your experience is relevant to the topic at hand. I mean, like, do you not talk about things on the episodes? Uh, not much. I mostly just talk about you and other people. So because for the audience, this is the last episode of the Indie Hackers podcast. And, you know, Cortland's moving away from San Francisco. I understand Cortland. What's going on? Yeah, the second part of that statement is true. I'm moving away. <laughs> I don't. I hope it's not the last episode of, of the podcast because that means something's going to happen to me. Why? Where are you? Where are you going? I'm going on an indefinite road trip. Is what I'm doing right now. It's mostly. Why are you doing this? Uh, the genesis of this is that I've been on a few longish, like three to four week trips in the last year, and during every one of those, like I just liked my life a lot better than I like my life in San Francisco. Wow. What, what turned? Think, I, I don't think anything turned really. I just think that, you know, if I put on my sort of analysis hat, like obviously traveling is fun. Being exposed to new and unique situations is great and it's enlivening. And I think having like a time limit, whenever you travel somewhere, it's not like you're just going to be there forever. You're going to be there for two or three weeks and you've got a flight back home. And I think just having that time limit forces you to get out and do more things than you would at home. So in San Francisco, it's like, oh, I've got years here. Like it took me like four years of living here before I ever went to Alcatraz. If I was just visiting San Francisco, I would have just gone to Alcatraz, gone to the Redwoods, like hit up some of the coolest restaurants. I just would have lived a much more active life. Interesting. And so I guess this trip is more of like an experiment. And like, what if I am always on a clock? What if no matter where I am, I'm only going to be there for a few days? When you use the word indefinite, I feel like you're making it clear that you're not on a clock, right? (laughs) I mean, the trip itself 
is not on a clock, but the time I spend in each place I'm going to go to will be. Like, I'm not going to go anywhere and be there for like forever. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like, each place that you end up in will feel like a liminal exactly. state where exactly. you'll feel motivated somehow to like really experience it. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful idea. Uh, I hope that this is enlivening for you. I hope so too. I mean, worst case scenario, I hate it and I just come back and, you know, nobody died. I mean, also, this is, this is part of the fruits of having sold your bootstrapped company, is it not? Like, this is a thing that might only be possible having had the good fortune that you've had. You know, I think it's easy to tell yourself that you have to wait for something to happen before you do, before you do the thing you want to do. You it's know? true. But if I look back, like, I could have done this at any point in time in my life in the last 10 years. There's absolutely nothing stopping me. I definitely know people like that. You can make your own pimped out camper van and you can really just like live the life, man. You don't really have to sell a company to do that. That is correct. You really don't. And I think if you're an indie hacker, you've got a bootstrap business and it's internet based, which like I obviously did. You don't need to work like 80 hours a week. You don't need to work on a perfectly set schedule and you don't, there's just, you don't need to live an expensive life. You don't need an office. So Mm -hmm. I could have done this at any point in time. I think the turning point for me was more so the fact that uh, I just had these trips that kind of opened my eyes to even having this idea in the first place. Let me ask you something, actually. As the proprietor of IndieHackers.com, let, let's say a founder came to you with what seemed to you to be a pretty good idea for a business that they wanted mm-hmm. to start. And they wanted your advice on whether they should raise venture capital for this idea or not. Are you generally against this idea? You actually, in my conversations with you, strikingly neutral on the topic. Yeah. So, what do you what do you really think? I'm a bad cult leader. I think a, a great cult leader would be unequivocally uh, one sided about things, sure. and have zero nuance. I'm I'm not like anti VC. I think there's a time and a place. What do you what? Let's say this founder was in fact yourself. <laughs> what if it was me? <laughs> what would you? How would you approach this decision? Yeah, I mean, essentially, you're asking me, yeah, what are what are the factors that you consider if you want to determine should you raise money or not? Yeah, yeah I mean, that's I think exactly it, what I'm asking you. If anyone should know, it's you, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it's easier to answer in in light of different personas because people come into this with different amounts of knowledge. I think the biggest problem and one of the reasons I started Indie Hackers in the first place was that so many people don't understand a lot of the truths and realities about what it's like to raise venture capital and the fact that an alternative path even exists because the sort of tech press is only ever really publicized or glorified okay. that path. Right. I'm asking you to evaluate the trade-offs. Like, what do you think? Yeah, 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 yeah. So the trade-offs for me would be, number one, like, do you want to constantly be in a state of, you know, what program would call default dead, where you are beholden to these people who have an expectation that you hit some growth target that is almost always going to be a stretch. And if you don't hit that, your company is basically dead. And maybe you can take some money off the table or maybe you can get lucky and find a buyer. But I think you're in a constant state of stress and that is caused by the differential between where you want to get and where you are and knowing that you don't necessarily have a safety net. Well, there's some benefit to, I mean, okay, yeah. let's say the idea sort of requires like, you know, at least three people to work on it for like, sure. let's say at least like six months before the idea can be minimum viable, you know? And this, this would be perhaps, you know, you, you could maybe bootstrap it yourself, but you'd be committing to spending like, I don't know. I mean, the benefit is that you go much faster and you can get much bigger faster, right? Yeah, would you take that deal is what I'm saying. The situation for me that would convince me to take VC would be, number one, I already sold a company and feel like financially set, which has already happened. Number two, I have an idea that I believe in enough that 
I think is important enough, not just for me, but like for whoever the customers would be, potentially the world, that I do think I need to pour that much money into it and want it to be big. And the absence of that idea, I would just choose to bootstrap a company. Well, I mean, I mean v, putting VC into it is, is not putting, it's not putting your own money. I mean, it's actually other people's exactly. money. So it's like less, it's risk averse in that sense, right? It's not, but it's not, for me, it's not much about the risk. It's more about if I'm going to undergo like all the negatives of raising VC, am I at least doing it to produce something that like I think should exist? Because I think I'm somewhat similar to you in that like, I don't mm. need to try to start another company just to make more money. Like there's no part of me that's like, I need to just keep making money forever and ever, you know, no matter what. So if I'm going to work on something so in the future... It's more like if you felt like an idea that had to be done right. and it seemed like the best way to cause that exactly. idea to be done was to raise venture capital. Then I would do it. What's an example of an idea like for a business that, let's say, already exists that if you had come up with it, you, you would feel like it had to be done? I don't know. I don't think there's any like... Honestly, I think Stripe is such a company. If, I, if Stripe didn't exist and I spent a lot of time like talking to founders like I do today and everyone was struggling to just like implement payment for their company. And it was like, you know what, like there's a way to make this simpler and I know that I can do it and I can raise money for doing it. I think so. That's a convenient answer given your (laughs) employer. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. What about you? What would you raise money for? Oh, I'd raise money for any odd idea. I mean, I, this is maybe weird about me and maybe counterintuitive, but like, I don't understand why more people don't just screw over their VCs. Uh, like, like imagine, let's just put it this, like imagine, imagine you just took a safe, right? And then you never raised a price round of equity ever. I mean, you're talking about um, our mutual acquaintance, Len, who went to Y Combinator and raised from YC and then deliberately decided she never wanted to raise another round and hasn't. And I think that's actually, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's surprisingly common. I think there's an immense amount, like she wasn't it's, it's happy common. doing that. Oh, well, I would feel happy to. I mean, like if I thought that I could raise, I don't know, like seed rounds are up to absurd amounts these days. You could raise a million dollars seed round. Like if I could get a million dollars on a convertible note that like basically never had to be paid back nor convert to equity, why wouldn't I? <laughs> Basic human ethics, like the idea. What? The, why? The, they know the, the risks. The sense of obligation to the people who you told that you would be shooting for a particular goal. I just would not tell them any such thing. If you could raise a million dollars without ever communicating that your future intentions. Oh, I wouldn't communicate it literally. I'd be like, you know, I think this is a really good idea and then it should exist. I think you and could like, do wow, this. Wow, the market for it is quite large, don't you think? Also, I have a track I think record. if you wanted to do this, you could do it. I think if you really wanted to, you could. I, I think in reality, a safe would still convert when you eventually sold the business anyway. I think it's, I think it would be difficult to actually get away with it entirely. But I guess I mean in the lighter sense that even if you sold the price, let's say you sold 20% of your company for quite a lot of money or whatever, you actually are under no real legal obligation to run your company any particular way. They can't outvote I mean, you. I know a lot of founders who run VC-funded companies are in a, I would say, a miserable emotional state. And 100% of their concern comes from like just the the built-in like human sense of obligation to another person. This person put money into your company. They have faith in you. And if you're letting them down, it just feels bad, especially for like the conscientious types of people who become founders. Like, they don't feel bad that they're letting down their employees. They feel bad about all, the, all of the above. They're, that it would be their investor. To, like, I don't know. It's true. I've seen this myself too. With, like, I think with, it makes sense because it's like, um, what's the name of it? It's like, if somebody gives you something, you feel almost obligated to give something back. And like the investor being yeah. like the person who, gave you them. I mean, you're paying your employees at least. It sucks. Like it really does feel bad to let down your employees. But like your investor just gave you a bunch of money. 
So I think it's just hard for people to let someone down who just gave, who wrote you a check for a million dollars. I, I agree that there seems to be something sort of parasocial there. Like, I think it's that the relationship exploits like a weird aspect of human psychology. Cause like, sort of like game theoretically, like stepping all the way back, there's, there's no reason actually really that you ought to care much about the return for your investor once you have their money, you know, like either they'll get a return or they don't, they knew the risks. If you're like a cold, hard robot, I think that's totally true. Not a robot, but I mean, like, I, I think just a realist, right? Like, your investor has invested similar amounts of money in a hundred people who look just like you, which they expect only one of you to return any significant amount of money. So like just knowing that calculus, I would personally, I think, feel like, you know, that I was not important to them and that I, they should not be important to me because the, the, the asymmetry of the relationship is so huge. There's like a hundred of me for one of them. Exactly. Well, I think often investors are the, people reminding founders of that fact. Because a lot of founders have never raised before and they tie themselves into these knots and get emotionally... Uh, it's, it's true that VCs use this language all the time, right? Like that they are there to serve the founder and that that's how the like relationship should be thought of. Oh, no. I mean, like I can name specific instances where VCs have said, hey, you seem super stressed out about this. You should know that like if the company goes to zero, like I'll be okay. You need to chill out. Yeah. They, it's not even their money. <laughs> They don't yeah, care. <laughs> they get paid either way. <laughs> they get paid even if your company goes to zero. They get 2% carry. It's insane. Like, can you, man? What is that job is crazy, man? Like, oh my God. <sighs> yeah. The, the financials for VCs is, uh, I mean, obviously they're incentivized to succeed, but the fact that they can do so well if they just raise a huge fund and then it just completely fails and they'll still make millions of dollars a year if they raise enough money. is pretty crazy. I'm just surprised that more founders don't raise like a 20% A round or equivalent seed round or something and then just not spend it. Like I would keep it as a war chest. You know what I mean? If I thought it was going to be a long time till I was profitable, I wouldn't try to race the clock to profitability. I'd hire extremely slowly and work very diligently to get there. But like anyone who's tried to scale a team very quickly knows what happens when you try to throw money at this problem, you know, like it doesn't work that great. What happens is nine times out of 10 or 95 times out of 100, the company fails. And the other five times, it hopefully becomes a unicorn and the investors make their money. No, no, no I don't even mean the company sense. I mean, like in the human sense of hiring a bunch of new employees and trying to get them coordinate around a novel mission is really hard. Like the people best able to actually do this work for a long time is going to be the founders. And I feel like the entirety almost of the round raise should go to just keeping them alive. You know, unless it's absolutely necessary to hire outsiders. Because you give yourself so many more chances that way. Like, There's like kind of a new, I guess, class of investor who's more interested in these like slower growth bootstrapped businesses. Um, there's Rob Walling at um, yeah, yeah. Tiny Seed and, and Tyler Trinkus at Earnest Capital. And they're like investors who don't pressure you to spend all of your money as fast as possible because they have more capital to deploy than <laughs> to put into your next round. And I think that that will become increasingly common. I think people are realizing that there are companies like CoderPad that actually can be successes. And I think they're devising instruments that allow them to invest yeah. in a way that like makes sense. And it's taken some time, but like 10 years from now, I don't think we live in a world where uh, the only path is VC or not. And maybe this is, maybe the way that it is right now is actually correct. Cause I mean, like even reflecting on it, like, I don't know that there's a financial instrument that you could offer CoderPad that it would have made sense for me to take, you know, like, I don't 
like even if it was very easy to come to venture capital, at least in the early days, I, I don't think I could have given a very favorable price to a VC. Like I don't see why the deal would actually be done because I didn't need money. You know, like if you actually do build a profitable bootstrap business, especially in the early, if if you come to it quickly there really isn't a need for additional capital ever, you know, like you can just eat your earnings. If you make enough money early on to quit your job. But I mean, like there could be something in there where you could, I think most of the the proposals now depend on the investors being able to correctly predict with a high degree of like a high percentage of success, which companies can return their capital uh, and then not needing as big of returns. And so you could theoretically imagine someone invest in CoderPad you quit your job immediately instead of having to work mm-hmm. for a year to be able to cover your rent. You get to profitability faster. After a few years, you return all the money that was invested. And I guess what I'm saying is even in that situation, like if I could convince an investor that like return on investment in that case was highly likely, that means I have already convinced myself, which means I should be willing to eat my own savings, you know, which I, for the most part, was willing to. So like, it doesn't seem like there, it'd have to be a huge amount of money for almost no price at that time in order to get someone in my position to yes, you know? You would have to calculate that the cost of continuing to work at your job and eat through your savings is less painful than the cost of giving up a percentage of your business to an investor. Yeah. It's such a tough, it's such a tough calculus to make on the part of the founder. Like it's, I would default to no deal, you know, because yeah. the benefits are not obvious. I mean, the cool thing is we get to see this experiment play out. We get to see lots of people <laughs> making this decision right now and like another totally, year yeah. or two will like, I'll be able to have them all on the show and be like, how did it go? Do you regret it? Will you do it again? <laughs> do you know anyone in, in the Tiny Seed uh, uh, cohort? Yeah, there's a lot of companies in the Tiny Seed cohort and some of them have actually been on Indie Hackers, but I just don't think we're far enough out to mm. really for people to be able to say, okay, this was the right decision or at least to That's be what, honest like, about it. Are they receiving investment before they've reached market? Um, some, but I think not the majority. I think the majority of them already have a product that's already generating revenue. And Interesting. they're already, they're further along than you were in this hypothetical situation we're discussing. Wild. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, listen, Vincent, the ND Hackers podcast tradition is uh, people listening are fledgling founders. Many of them have not been uh, divinely inspired to have a great idea. Uh, what's your advice for somebody out there who's trying to figure out how they can follow in your footsteps? I prefer to avoid that framing, but... Uh, because in the literal sense, I mean, yeah. you could literally clone my idea and you could compete with the current company. I don't recommend it though. I mean, it's gonna be tough. Uh, you know, try to have a good idea. It's obviously a facetious answer. You know, you think clearly about like what value you're providing to who and to whether there are enough of those people and whether they're willing enough to part with your money. Think about whether ideas like yours have been tried and whether they have failed or not prior because I mean, the truth is all of this advice is advice I did not follow personally, you know, right. like <laughs> the annoying part is like, I was certain, you know, like I was always certain maybe because of hubris, maybe because I was correct, but like it was, it's hard to convey the sense of certitude I experienced. And maybe the advice ought to be then like, wait until you experience certitude, but that doesn't seem right either because there definitely should be room in the market for people to experiment with ideas they're not quite sure about. So I don't know what to say, like, except to say there's clearly no sure thing, right? Like that you can do everything right and still fail miserably seems obvious. And if I had to give any advice, I mean, like disconcertingly, I would say like, accept failure earlier, you know, like be at peace with whatever outcome may happen before it happens. 
because if you are not, you will not be free to inspect reality. You know, like you will avoid, you will avoid <laughs> learning things that would indicate an outcome that you're not ready to accept. I think this is one of the principal mistakes I see made. I guess it's like you said, like you think maybe one of the things that people can do is learn to dismiss bad ideas sooner. I have seen quite a lot of founders pursue things that seem to me to be patently bad ideas. And when I try to convince them of this, at least my opinion, let's say, you know, I've found them terribly unreceptive. Like at some level, I understand, like you don't really want to be that receptive to someone telling you that like what you're doing is wrong. But at the same level, I think you ought to be very receptive to that idea because the impact of that fact, if it is true, is so huge for your world that you ought to be really sensitive to evidence that indicates that that's the world that you live in. So I guess this is a really long-winded way of saying you should be really open-minded. <laughs> be open-minded, accept the possibility of failure, and uh, be actively looking for reasons why your idea might not work so that you don't have to waste you know, years of your life figuring out the hard way what could have been done easily. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or ask yourself ahead of time, yeah, what the contrapositive be? Like, what evidence would there be in the world of me being wrong if I was wrong? You know, so like in coder pads, for instance, I can, I can sort of do this exercise in hindsight, right? Like if I was wrong, the coder pad would be a correct business to exist. What would I notice? Well, I think one thing that I would notice is that it would be extremely hard to convince people that would otherwise have every economic incentive, at least in my model, to want to test programming candidates more thoroughly. And there definitely have been people who've brought businesses as ideas to me that are very similar to CoderPad. It's like sort of like a CoderPad for like some other industry where my response would be like, I actually don't know, or you haven't convinced me that the market you're targeting actually experiences enough of an economic incentive to want to filter its candidates more appropriately. It's like they've copied your product and they're trying to apply it to a different problem, but there's no evidence right. that that problem is one that anybody cares about. It's the market. The people don't get it's the market more than it is even the idea or the timing. Like I guess timing encompasses market, like or the other way around. But like the market is so 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 important. Market excuses poor ideas, poor execution, like just total ignorance. If you happen to luck into the correct market, and I guess by extension idea, like you can flail wildly and still get there. Likewise, if the market is missing, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how well you execute or how well you understand how to build the product, right? Like there have to be people who want to transact with you. I mean, yeah. in this economic regime. And, and so I, I tried to push gently a lot of time. I'm like, okay, like I understand the product as you propose, but are you sure that there are buyers? And like, what, what evidence would there be? I mean, it's not enough to ask the question, right? You have to ask the other question, which is like, what evidence would convince you one way or another that there are or are not buyers, right? In CoderPad's case, I think if my first 10 conversations with engineering managers in positions to buy who are experiencing the problem that roughly my product exists, that my product addresses, opted in, in clear terms not to buy, then I, I, I think I would have been really confused. And I think I would have experienced a strong desire to halt. The reality was like, I talked to like, I don't know, like the first 10 people, like most bought, you know, I was like, oh, okay, clearly this works. Right. But I think that would have been a, that would have been a really early turning point for me. Cause I think it would be easy also to say to someone in that position, Hey, you should just push on, like talk to more people. But like, I think if you say that to someone, I think you're obligated to tell them how many more people, like how many more experiments, you know, like, what evidence would be sufficient. And I think thinking about like what you would require to reach 
a decision one way or another before you make the decision is a really helpful way of framing the problem. It's like an old like Bayesian trick or whatever. Couldn't agree more. Vincent Wu, thanks for uh, coming back on the podcast. Totally. Thanks for listening to the last Indie Hackers podcast. It's really cool to retire along with retiring this podcast. And you know, this is a great season finale. Like I feel really good about it. I think we covered a lot. Covered a lot. Yeah. Can you tell listeners where they can go to get in touch with you if they want to, or maybe follow some of the things you're up to? Just tweet at me. I mean, just like search for Vincent Wu on Twitter. It's W-O-O. My handle is Fulligan, F-U-L-L-I-G-I-N. I'm mostly just on Twitter now. I guess you can email me also at me at vincentwu.com. But you should, I mean, just tweet at me, man. All right. Thanks, Vincent. All right. See ya. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Probably the fastest way to get there if you're on a Mac is to visit ndhackers.com slash reviews. I really appreciate your support and I read pretty much all the reviews you leave over there. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, I will see you next time. <laughs>